Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The forces behind the disasters of September 11, 2001, are said by some to be unclear and yet to be defined, notwithstanding the official report of the 9-11 Commission. And that is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. In the first of two interviews with David Ray Griffin, a professor emeritus from the Claremont School of Theology and the author of The New Pearl Harbor, Disturbing Questions About the Bush Administration and 9-11. His book presents questions of empirical fact about what happened on 9-11, as well as the role of the Bush administration in those events. I spoke with Professor Griffin from his home in Southern California, and I asked him to tell us about his book and what these doubts and questions are. Well, my book is uh, based on the work of many previous researchers, and for the most part, I simply take the work they have done and uh, collate it, in a sense, put it together and uh, in a fairly brief and readable form, and uh, focus on all the problems in the official account that suggests that something other than what the government told us uh, must be what ha- really happened that day. What are some of those problems? <clears throat> well, probably the, the best known is the fact that there are standard operating procedures for dealing with... Uh, airplanes that have apparently been hijacked. The FAA, uh, if they notice a plane that uh, or you lose radio contact or the transponder goes off or it deviates from the course, or particularly if you hit the trifecta, you know, and all three of those happen, then they call the military, uh, they call NORAD, and uh, NORAD then sends up airplanes, have airplanes scrambled, as they call it, from the nearest Air Force base that has fighters on alert. And uh, typically in the past, that whole process of noticing the plane going off course or losing contact and then uh, notifying the uh, NORAD and then the scramble alert being given and then the fighters, which can fly Some of them, like the F-15s, can fly over 1,850 miles an hour. So normally they would get there within uh, 15 minutes. And yet on that day, more than 20, 30, or 40 minutes would go by, and no planes either were scrambled. That was the first version of the official account. Or they were scrambled, but they got there too late. When you say the first version... Are uh, subsequent versions uh, contrary or uh, contradictory to the first version? Yeah, we actually now, thanks to the 9-11 Commission, now we have three versions, but up till the 9-11 Commission, we had two versions. The first few days, General Myers and the NORAD spokesman and others were saying they didn't scramble any airplanes until after the Pentagon was hit. Well, that was a long time because the first flight, Flight 11, um, was noticed to be possibly hijacked at 8.14, and the Pentagon was not hit until 9.38. So this would have been an hour and a half 
before any planes were scrambled. Why the delay? They didn't have an explanation. They just said we didn't send any planes up. And you see, that was obviously the problem. Pretty soon, they started letting out another story, which was, uh, in fact, it came out on CBS, uh, oh, I think on the uh, September 14th. And then by September 18th, it was it was official. NORAD came out with a timeline that said that it hadn't been notified of the first flight by the FAA until about 8.40, and that only left at six minutes, which wasn't enough to stop the flight. Then with the Flight 175, they said they actually... Uh, had a little more time there, but that the planes almost made it, but they were still 70 miles away by the time the second plane hit the South Tower, and then a similar problem with Flight 77. That's the one that crashed into the Pentagon. Well, that's the official story, and we may want to get into problems with that. Why don't we move to the problems with Flight 77 and the Pentagon? What are those problems? One is that all the physical evidence relating to the Pentagon strike suggests that it could not have been a Boeing 757 that hit the Pentagon. What is the physical evidence? Well, one was simply the fact that uh, some photographs show, actually taken by military men, whatever it was hit the west wing of the Pentagon. In other words, as far away from the east wing where the top brass were as possible. The west wing had been the facade had been uh, fortified. It, it was, in fact, it was still in the process of being renovated. But that would take extreme fortification to uh, to stop a Boeing 757 going about 400 miles an hour, as they said. And yet, the photograph shows that the facade did not collapse for 30 minutes, and that the hole that was caused in the facade was no more than 18 or 20 feet in diameter. Now, when you first hear that, that's astounding, because a Boeing 757 has a wingspan of 125 feet, and with its tail, it's about 40 feet high. And, of course, it would have those massive engines on the on the wings, and it would have just demolished, certainly in the center there, a very big swath. In fact, a story in the... Uh, Washington Post the next day said that the hole created was five stories high and 200 feet wide, and that's about what a Boeing 757 would cause, but unfortunately the photograph shows that the hole was no more than uh, 20 feet in diameter. Where did the photographs come from? Uh, these are uh, military photographs. A Frenchman named Terry Maison has a couple of books. Uh, one of them is just called Pentagate, and that would probably be the best one for photographs. And it's got these uh, photographs in there, and it gives the credit. The one is to uh, uh, Marine Corporal Jason Ingersoll, and another one from another military. And then there's a picture by Tom Horan of the Associated Press, which shows another embarrassing fact, which is that if the hole was only 20, you know, 20 feet in diameter, that means only the nose of the plane could have gone inside the Pentagon. So the rest of the plane should be sitting out there on the lawn. But his photograph, like the others, show that there's no 
explain there. In fact, Terry Mason has a has a website that's called Hunt the Boeing, where he shows all the photographs and no sign of a Boeing anywhere. And also the people who were inside, like uh, Ed Plower, the fire chief, when they asked him at the news conference the next day, the Pentagon press conference, what he saw in the air. He said, well, no big pieces of anything, you know, no fuselage, no, <laughs> no tail, no... The only evidence we have that the Pentagon was hit by a Boeing 757 is that that's what the Pentagon told us. And what was reported in the Washington Post, presumably by the Pentagon. I actually uh, emailed this guy, one of the two guys who wrote this story for the Washington Post, and I asked him, and I report this in the book in a, in a note, I asked him uh, if he remembered where he got this information about how big the hole was and whether anything had uh, caused him to change his mind later and maybe think the hole wasn't quite that big. And he wrote back and he said, well, he couldn't remember where he got the information, but he noticed some skepticism in my question. And he says, well, if you want to know how big the hole was, just ask the Pentagon. They'll tell you. This raises two issues. One, what made the diameter of the hole? You're saying it's approximately 20 feet. So a question would be, where does that 20-foot statement come from? Yeah, and this is why I, one reason I don't go into what really happened, because it's uh, there's a bunch of contradictory evidence here. Uh, so Terry McSone's own theory is that it was a missile. And he's got various reasons for thinking that. Besides the shape of the hole, there's the the kind of fire that uh, uh, resulted. It was a very hot fire with very red flames, uh, very different from the ordinary hydrocarbon fire that you saw in the uh, Twin Towers, which was based, of course, on the, the, the jet fuel, the kerosene. And he says this is characteristic of the kind of fuel that missiles used. But on the other hand, there's evidence that there were airplane parts in there, but not of a Boeing, but of a small airplane. So some people have a theory about a small military airplane, and some people have a more complex theory about two different kinds of things. I just don't think we're in position to figure out what really happened uh, until we uh, maybe get a hold of the people who, 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 who were in charge, who knew about what really happened. In the meantime, I just put the focus on the issue that uh, the evidence suggests the the truth is not what they've told us. Notwithstanding that, uh, Professor Griffin, do you have a thought as to where the Boeing went if it didn't go into the Pentagon? Uh, there are various theories about that. At the time, it was heavily reported that a jet airliner had crashed in um, Ohio or Kentucky which would have been the area where this plane was. That was taken very seriously at the time. Jane Garvey uh, reported it at the, uh, in the teleconference that Richard Clark tells about in his book, uh, Against All Enemies. They've gone to quite, quite some length to deny that, uh, that that happened. There are other theories that maybe it was crashed uh, on, in a secure location somewhere and other people have other theories, but I say I don't go into that. Uh, there's just so much to talk about to focus on uh, 
all the problems in the official theory, both with the Pentagon and with the uh, towers. Well, I'd like you to explain some of those further problems, but first I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Professor Emeritus from the Claremont School of Theology, David Ray Griffin, about his new book called The New Pearl Harbor, Disturbing Questions About the Bush Administration and 9-11. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Professor Griffin, what are some of the other issues that you just mentioned? One big cluster of issues is the whole question of the uh, three buildings of the World Trade Center collapsing. The official theory is that uh, they were brought down by fire. Uh, with the towers, you've got the addition that maybe the, the impact of the airplanes somehow weakened them sufficiently that made them more likely to come down. There are many, many problems with this theory. Uh, one is, first of all, even people who believe the orthodox theory, that is, that fire brought it down, say that the crash by the airplanes into those huge buildings would have been fairly insignificant, and they had leveled off within 30 seconds. By leveling off, you mean that they had stopped swaying That's as a result right. of yeah, the Yeah, they were stable within 30 seconds. Secondly... Uh, Building number seven, uh, which in most uh, locations would have been a skyscraper because it was 47 stories high, it also came crashing down, and and it was not hit by an airplane. So uh, the airplane theory we, we we can dismiss. Secondly, never before in history have any steel framed high rise buildings been brought down by fire. And there have been tests where they deliberately Uh, took an old building and just turned it into a towering inferno. You know, you could make the steel sag a little bit if you got it sufficiently hot, but it it never collapsed. Even if you could imagine a collapse, it would be a slow collapse. It would probably go down sideways and so on because it wouldn't be uh, equal in all places. These buildings collapsed within 10 to 15 seconds some of them 15, some of them 10. That is virtually free-fall speed. That's from the time that they started to fall. That's right, that it took, and and here we're talking about 110 stories in the case of the towers to to collapse (laughs) as if, you know, there was no resistance whatsoever. Well, that is um, one of uh, the ten characteristics of controlled demolitions. And, of course, a controlled demolition is when uh, explosives have been put in all the crucial places throughout a building and then uh, set to go off in a particular order that brings the building straight down into its own footprint. It does collapse at virtually free-fall speed. So those are two of the characteristics And then others are that you're going to have a lot of concrete turned into powdery dust. Well, that was one of the overwhelming features of uh, particularly the towers. Enormous dust clouds, all this concrete uh, pulverized into very tiny dust particles. Fourthly, you had uh, hot spots under the rubble for uh, many, you know, like 50 days, which is also characteristic because the explosives heat up the steel. When you say the explosives heat up the steel, how does that connect to the hot spots? Is the steel hot for the 50 days? 
That's right. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it really heats it up, and then if it's buried in the rubble, why then uh, the heat escapes only very slowly. Another feature that was very peculiar was that they uh, immediately then started loading up the steel onto trucks and trucking it away and, and shipping it out to sea, and then it was sold and uh, shipped off to Korea and uh, China and so on. Who made the decision to do that? It seems like it was the city of New York or the Port Authority or maybe the state of New York, and of course both the state and the city are involved with the Port Authority, but the FBI had to sanction it because normally removing evidence from the scene of a crime is a federal offense, and yet here it proceeded. Well, the excuse was they said, well, you know, there may be, uh, remember they were saying that there may be some people still under there, and we need to get the steel out so that we can, uh, we can maybe save a few more lives. That may have been plausible with the Twin Towers, but building number seven, they tell us they had everybody taken out of it by noon, and it didn't collapse until 5.20 or so in the afternoon, so there would have been no people under the rubble there, and yet they removed the steel from there just as fast. Are there other indicators that the building did not fall as a result of the airplane impacts? Another major feature is that these twin towers, their outstanding characteristic was that the core of each building was constituted by 47 massive steel columns. Even if one accepts the official account, which is a kind of pancake theory, that the floor right above where the crash hit came crashing down and it hit the floor beneath it and caused it to pancake and, and so on, you would still have those 47 columns sticking hundreds of feet up in the air, and yet everybody who's seen the photographs uh, know that it was no more than, say, three stories high what, uh, what was left there. In your book, you say that the price of rejecting a conspiracy theory is to accept a coincidence theory. Can you describe those two theories? Um, yeah, and the first point to make is uh, it's actually not a choice between uh, conspiracy theory or not. It's, it's really which conspiracy theory you accept, because the official account was the original conspiracy theory, which is that 9-11 was caused by a bunch of al-Qaeda operatives under the inspiration of Osama bin Laden, and they conspired to do all this single-handedly. The other conspiracy theory is, no, the government either allowed it to happen or maybe even was involved in uh, planning it and uh, carrying it out. The rejection, then, of that second conspiracy theory is, uh, yeah, a coincidence theory. In one of my latter chapters, I show an enormous number of coincidences you would have to swallow in order to... Uh, reject that. Uh, it gets to the level of, uh, if you were trying to do it in some sort of uh, percentage terms, would be, uh, would be miraculous. I, I see I had 38 such coincidences, and all those coincidences happened, and then you would have to accept it. It was just a coincidence that on that day so many coincidences happened. <laughs> you know, for, for example, it, it was just a coincidence that that day FAA controllers who normally operate very well, all of them in relation to all four flights, have uh, failed miserably. 
And likewise, where the military can normal sc- normally scramble airplanes very quickly, and uh, they themselves have said they can go from scramble order to 2,900 feet in two and a half minutes. That day, it would take them six or seven minutes to get up. You also have a chapter entitled, The President's Behavior. Why did he act as he did? Can you summarize that for us? Yeah, that's a very interesting thing, because all the attention on the president's behavior that day was focused on the question of, why didn't he come back to Washington more quickly? Was he afraid? Put yourself in in the situation of the president. He's down there at this school in Sarasota, Florida. He's uh, to do this photo opportunity by listening to these children read. And they learned that not only the North Tower of the World Trade Center had been hit, which they dismissed as, oh, what a terrible accident. But then when the South Tower was hit, Andrew Card whispers in the president's ear at about 9.05 or so, oh, it was clear America was under attack. Tenet had already said, uh, George Tenet, CIA director, had already said this looks like al-Qaeda and so on. Well, if it were a terrorist attack and they had attacked the World Trade Center, you would assume, well, they're going to attack the Pentagon, the CIA, and the White House, and the president, wherever he is. Well, everybody knew where the president was. This was a well-publicized trip. The Secret Service should have assumed that the terrorists were going to crash an airplane right into the school there and kill the president. You know, what greater victory for them? And yet the Secret Service let Bush just sit there for another 10 minutes, and then they went out, and they did their TV interview, and and then they got in their car and went on their regularly scheduled trip right back to Air Force One, and then they took off in Air Force One without without any air cover. So the big question was, why were they not afraid when they should have been scared to death? Well, that's part of the implication of either a conspiracy theory or a coincidence theory. And if that's true, that there is uh, one of several conspiracy theories that you mention in your book, why is it that no one in the government has come forward and described something about it? Well, actually, it's not true that they haven't. Uh, People have been trying to say all sorts of things, but uh, either they're put under a gag order, like Sabelle Edmonds, who has told all sorts of things about the FBI's obstruction. David Shippers, who was the uh, lawyer who uh, prosecuted uh, Clinton and so should be well-received in Republican circles, reports that he tried to go get to John Ashcroft ahead of 9-11 to warn him that several FBI agents had told him they knew there was going to be an attack on lower Manhattan They knew the date. Uh, Ashcroft would never return his call. These FBI men want to testify, but uh, they're not given any immunity, so they they, they fear they would be thrown into prison and uh, not be able to support their families and so on. And there are many more stories like that that are emerging all the time of people who want to come forward, but um, for one reason or another, can't. And many have frankly been told, you shall not talk to the press, you shall not do anything. And a lot of us wonder, well, you know, this is so big, uh, why, why shouldn't we, why wouldn't people come forward anyway? Well, 
uh, an atmosphere has not been created that makes this um, an attractive one. The press ignores you, or if you do say something, they vilify you. Look what happened to John Dean or Cynthia McKinney when they made the mildest suggestions. People have also been told, if you talk, we can't guarantee the, the protection of your family. Sibel Edmonds was told that they wouldn't be able to guarantee the protection of her family. Uh, She's from Turkey, and uh, she found sure enough that Turkish authorities, within a few days, showed up at her sister's home. Fortunately, her sister was uh, out of the country. There's intimidation. There are all sorts of factors to explain why we've not heard much about it. Professor David Ray Griffin, author of The New Pearl Harbor, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, I've just been uh, working on a, another book on uh, the 9-11 Commission. And in relation to that, I read a book by Peter Lance that has just come out called Cover Up. And it is a fascinating tale that has two parts to it. One tells about uh, Ramzi Youssef, who uh, was the uh, mastermind of the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. He was also the uh, mastermind of the Bajinka air plane conspiracy, really, where the plan was to blow up uh, 20 American airliners. And he also was the one who, according to Lance, came up with uh, uh, the basic idea behind 9-11. And then the second part of his book deals with the uh, flight TWA-800, which went down in 1996 while Youssef's trial was going on. And Lance presents very strong evidence that it was Youssef's, he was a bomb-making genius, it was his bomb that he had his fellow al-Qaeda members uh, make and and sneak onto the uh, flight that brought down flight TWA-800, and that the FBI and Justice knew it, but for other reasons, because it would cause a bunch of uh, mob cases to unravel, uh, they decided to cover it up. Professor David Ray Griffin, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. You're welcome. David Ray Griffin is a professor emeritus from the Claremont School of Theology and the author of The New Pearl Harbor, Disturbing Questions About the Bush Administration and 9-11. The book he recommends is Cover Up by Peter Lance. You may learn more about the issues of what occurred at the Pentagon raised by Professor Griffin in the website www.rense.com slash general20 slash hunt That's www.rense.com slash general20 slash hunt Join us in the next edition of Radio Curious when we talk with Professor Griffin about his newest book, The 9-11 Commission Report, Omissions and Distortions. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available. 
There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.